Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right. Hey, good morning, everyone. Um, anytime we're away, we're away for a couple of weeks. Anytime we're away, we're so glad to be back. And I especially look forward to Sunday mornings. In my mind, this is the family gathering. And uh, of course, we have that on Wednesday nights. If you, if you didn't know, we have Wednesday night Bible study and youth group and kids ministry. And uh, we're all in different parts of the church. But on Sunday morning, we come together and we, it's like family time for me. So I hope it's that way for you, too. Anyway, I'm saying all that to say um, it's really good to see you this morning. Let's go to Luke chapter 13 for the message. We're talking uh, this morning about the triumphal entry of Jesus into, uh, into Jerusalem for that, that final time. Luke chapter 13. And it, it occurs to me as I was studying uh, for this that out of the 20... 22 years, Janie, how, how long have we been here again? So 22, that sounds right, 22, 22, that I preached 22 messages on uh, the triumphal entry, and so we're, I'm always looking for kind of a, a fresh insight, and yet you have to stay true to the text, and so I'd like to look this morning at life's little journeys, and I think a lot of life comes down to little journeys, don't it? Little journeys that are significant. And uh, I was thinking about some little journeys that are more than like walks or little trips. And, and uh, you think about uh, probably, first of all, a little journey by the baby across the room when it, it walks for the first time. That's so significant. Like the rest of their life, they're going to probably be walking across rooms. But that first time, that's so significant. Even just first steps in the right direction are things that we want to take note of and take pictures of and, and tell people about and be there for. And uh, we take a journey across the stage. It's about that time of year right now to receive diplomas, the end of a, a time of study and recognition that you've accomplished certain requirements by the school district or by your university or whatever it may be. And you receive the diploma and the school is endorsing you and pushing you out the door and saying, go off into life and accomplish great things. And then we have another little journey down an aisle, don't we, that sometimes we make a little journey down that center aisle with the bridal march and coming to that place where uh, you make commitments and stand beside a, a spouse and, and promise your faithfulness. And uh, that's not the marriage, that's the, that's the wedding. And it begins a whole new chapter in life. And many have walked the distance um, from our pews to an altar. And that's, uh, we may have driven all the way here, but we come sometimes to a place like this and we make the journey that will change eternity. Are you, you know what I mean? In the old days, they used to call that the sawdust trail back in the days of the tent meetings that, uh, I don't know if you know what that's about, but a lot of times when revivals would happen, they would bring a tent and set it up somewhere within the town so they could accommodate large crowds. And in order to avoid the mud from squeezing up through people's shoes, they put sawdust on the ground. And so... One of the things that uh, would happen is people would respond to the call, the invitation to come to know Jesus, and they would walk what was known as the sawdust trail. And uh, that was the journey from death to life. You, you understand what I mean? They, they were coming to meet Jesus. Jesus does the work, but, but there was a journey, a step of faith that was being made in that moment. And sometimes those little journeys may be a few feet or they may be a little bit longer distance, but they go in a direction that changes our life. And I think about some other stories like the, the walk on the road to Emmaus that transformed those two weary and saddened souls from their perspective. It's so interesting how this can happen that in a moment's time, the circumstances are already true, but they don't know it yet, right? Do you know the road to Emmaus that there's two people, two disciples that are walking along. They may be two guys. Some have thought that it might be a husband and a wife. And they're walking along on this road, and uh, Jesus comes and walks up beside them. And they're, he's like, why are you guys so sad? <laughs> and they're, Are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? And the irony of Luke's statement, 
because he's the only one in Jerusalem that really knows what's going on. And he begins to open the scriptures, and they come to a place where they're going to rest, and they sit down, and they have a meal together, and he breaks bread, and their eyes are open. And in that little journey, they've gone from missing what God was doing to becoming more aware, becoming open to what God has accomplished. Think about Saul uh, on the Damascus Road. He goes from being a persecutor of the church to the greatest propagator, perhaps, of Jesus, apart from Jesus himself. In a short distance, lives can be changed. And I think apart from the walk to Calvary, is there any journey that's more significant than the entrance into Jerusalem that final week? And it's a deliberate journey. I want to talk about that this morning. Let's look at Luke chapter 13 and Uh, We're going to look at verse 22, and then we'll jump immediately over some intervening text, and we'll come to verse 31 through 35, all right? Uh, Verse 22, then Jesus went through the towns and the villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. He's moving through towns and villages, and he's doing things. There are miracles that are taking place and things that are happening on the way to the cross. And then verse 31 tells us, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. That's not very welcoming. Herod wants to kill you. And he replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And the third day, I will reach my goal. That's a little bit cryptic, isn't it? He's hinting towards the resurrection. And the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, listen to this, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next Surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Let me pause here and just say when he says outside, he's talking about any place apart from Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying it's appropriate that a prophet should die in Jerusalem and not somewhere else. That's what he's trying to get at here. Verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I have longed to gather you as children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All this is set up. All this is preparation for the triumphal entry of Jesus, that deliberate journey that he would make, that that short journey. Some say it was probably about three miles long, that journey that he makes from uh, the top from Beth, Bethphage and uh, Bethany there where he, he collects a, a colt of a donkey and he comes riding in to the Hosannas, about three miles. And so we have Jesus making this deliberate journey and it matters to me and I, it should matter to you that Jesus is not from Jerusalem. He's not from Jerusalem. He's from, he was born in uh, Bethlehem and his family moves, moves to Nazareth, which is up north. And frequently through his ministry and through his childhood, we see this. And somebody has made the point that his family was very devout because it was not required of both men and women to go to Jerusalem for feasts like the Passover. But anytime we see Joseph going to Jerusalem, Mary's going to Jerusalem too. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And they're all, as a family, going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And it means to me that they take these things very seriously. And it's very important to them as a family. He's gone to Jerusalem many times, and uh, this time he's come for the Passover, as he has over 30 times before. We're not sure exactly how many, but at least 30 times before. And on on one occasion, when he was 12, the procession left to go back. There were always there's always hordes of people that were moving in and out of the city. They were As they were leaving, you would be traveling with a caravan. It wasn't just like you and your family. It was lots of other people that were going the same direction, people from the same village. And so the family set out to head back to Nazareth in Galilee. And uh, after they'd gone a little ways, they realized Jesus isn't with them anymore. And so they have to go back, and they search through Jerusalem for three days, and finally find uh, Jesus. And where is Jesus? He's in the temple, and he's, he's sitting down asking questions of the religious leaders, of the teachers of the law, back when, and he's 12 years old, and his mom wants to rebuke him. How can, how can you rebuke a kid for wanting to be in the church? Like, of all the places he could have been, 
he was at the temple. I think that's kind of fascinating. That's not where I would have been when I was 12. I would have been anywhere else but there if I could, could help it. But he's in there talking about theology, and he's talking about the scriptures, and he's understanding more, uh, more and more. The Bible says that he grew in wisdom and in stature before God and men. So he's there. Everyone thought he was with the relatives. Finally, they find him. He's with, the, with Israel's teachers. I wondered uh, today as I was studying, this may not mean something to any, uh, most of us, but I wondered if Gamaliel was there. Gamaliel was the teacher of, uh, of Paul when he was a Pharisee. Maybe Gamaliel is there. That's an interesting thought. You can look that up and see if, if that's true. I don't know if there's anything on it, but it provokes me anyway. So they find him with Israel's teachers, and over 20 years later, he would be talking with teachers again in the same place under different circumstances. Because as Jesus comes to the end of his journey, he's going to have some confrontation with those religious leaders. I don't know if it's the same guys or if it's a different set. But this Passover that he's coming to in the triumphal entry is different. Jerusalem became a different city during Passover. I don't know if you thought of this, but uh, the Jewish people had been dispersed throughout the world, and they couldn't call their land really their own. It was promised to them. It was theirs in, in deed, but it wasn't theirs in possession in terms of power. And so uh, many Jews were spread through dispersion, uh, through the exile, and through uh, probably going and seeking to find places to make money and, and provide for their families. And so they're all they're scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and it was required of Jewish men that they would travel to at least one major festival. They were supposed to go to all three, but at least one major fest- festival, and they would come to Passover. And so you have this inswelling of, of people coming to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. The Jewish people, they'd been dispersed, but uh, people traveled from great distances to observe Passover there. The regular population of Jerusalem in Jesus' day is estimated to be about 30,000 people. Okay, so 30,000 people and uh, that it would swell to anywhere from 200,000 to uh, an estimate as high as 12 million. Imagine that. That's a lot of people coming into one city. It's hard to really know exact numbers, uh, but the thing that we do know is that the city couldn't contain all the people, and so they would set up tents outside of the city walls. Some people would stay with relatives. If you're lucky, you'd have relatives that lived within the city that you could stay with who would let you stay with them. And then uh, some people, of course, would, uh, would stay out in the open air, and they'd sleep on the Mount of Olives. And some stayed with friends in surrounding villages, and uh, that's the way that they would come to celebrate the Passover festival. And the thing that is interesting is that in a crowd like that, if Jesus wants to come into Jerusalem and play it safe, he could have hidden. He could have hidden among the numbers. I went to this men's event in D.C. in 97, and uh, it, was a, it was a men's event nationally that we're calling upon men to stand in the gap. And I don't know, probably some of you remember that. But as we went there, the, the estimates were anywhere from 600,000 to 1.4 million people were gathered there. And uh, anyway, I, I was thinking about that in terms of the crowd, that if you got if you got separated from somebody that was in your party, and you know cell phones aren't weren't as prolific then as they are now. I don't know if you knew this. You kids who are in here that are were not born in '97. Let me just let you know, it was a whole different ball game back then. If you lose connection with somebody, you look for them. You don't call them. You don't text them. You look for them. And so uh, I can't imagine in that crowd getting disconnected and being able to just find the person you're looking for in a crowd of 100,000 even, or 200,000, or 300,000. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus, if he wanted to go in conspicuously, I can't remember which one's right. If he wanted to go in a way where he wasn't noticed, how's that? I always get conspicuous and inconspicuous mixed up in my mind in the moment I need it. But uh, if he wanted to hide, he could have. Are you with me? He could have hidden in the crowd, but that's not what he was about to do. And we see in other places in the gospel that Jesus was telling people not to tell anybody about him. In fact, there were times where they tried to go and make him king by force, and he slipped through the crowd and got away. 
There were times when persecution broke out and he went into hiding. In fact, the year before this Passover, when Jesus went to Jerusalem, he went secretly. Okay, so this is not always, it's not always his uh, approach to bring attention to himself. Uh, there's a, a specific way that that needs to happen, but he doesn't always do that. In fact, um, do you know that sometimes when Jesus healed people, he pulled them aside as not to make a spectacle out of them. There were other times where it happened in ways that it wasn't his necessarily his design, but it happened like the lady who touched the hem of his garment. You know, Jesus, as far as we know, wasn't planning on that. And it seemed that he's operating in his humanity there because he turns around and says, who touched me? And some lady had tried to creep up secretly, and of course, uh, she's she's healed. But I like you consider some times when Jesus was telling people, "Don't talk, I don't tell about this." And uh, we see in Matthew chapter eight, verse four, the healing of the leper. He heals this man who has leprosy, and he says, "Don't tell anybody what I've done for you." There's two blind men in Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty, and um, he said, "Don't tell anybody." And they went. The Bible says they went and they told everybody anyway. And then you have the healing of the many in Matthew 12, verse 16. You have the raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, verse 43. And he says, don't tell anybody about this. You have the healing of a deaf man in Mark chapter 7, verse 36. And not only was he deaf, but probably related to his, his being deaf is he couldn't speak. And so when Jesus heals this man, he, he says... Don't tell anybody. Can you imagine that? That If you got healed and you were able to speak, wouldn't the first words that you would want to say be, Jesus healed me? And Jesus says, you can't. Don't tell anybody. And I think he told people anyway. He did. The Bible says he did. That's in Mark chapter 7, verse 36, if you'd like to look it up. And then at the transfiguration, this is in Matthew 17, 9 and Mark 9, 9. Uh, they go up the mountain, they see Jesus transfigured on the way back down the mountain. Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, hey, uh, until the resurrection, don't tell anybody about this. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you've ever thought about all the don't tells, but there's a lot of these in the Bible. And then we have the demonic acknowledgments, and we see this on several occasions. Mark chapter 1, verse 21, Mark chapter 1, verse 34 Mark 3, verse 12, Luke 4, 41, the demons say, you're the Son of God. You're the Holy One of God. You're, if we're just to use those as shorthand, you're the Messiah. Okay? And Jesus says, shut up. <laughs> Where we tell our kids not to say, right? Uh, and it says in Mark 3, 12, he wouldn't let the demons speak because, because they knew who he was. That's interesting, isn't it? I thought we're supposed to make Jesus known everywhere. Yes, but it was for a proper time that he told them not to speak, not to say who he was. And then we have Peter's great confession, Matthew 16, 20, Mark 8, 30, Luke 9, 21. All those passages tell a little bit of the same story. Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? Uh, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say another prophet. Who do you say that I am? Well, you're Christ, son of the living God. Yes. Good job, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that. You didn't get that from being smart or figuring out logically. The Father revealed that to you. Now, don't tell anybody. <laughs> you get where this is all going? Like, there's some reason Jesus has for saying, don't talk about this. Now, I don't want you to take that verse and say, well, Jesus doesn't want me to witness. That verse is not for you. That verse was for those guys at that moment. We can witness. Are you with me? We can tell people about who Jesus is. But it seems strange to us that Jesus did that, and there are two reasons why this is important. And the first one is that he was managing the time of his sacrifice. Okay, He's managing, uh, you know, if you want to use modern terms, he's ma managing his own, um, he's being his own PR person. Like, guys, we need to keep this on the down low as best we can. Already uh, already talk about him was at fever pitch. Already people were describing what kind of person he was and the miracles that he was doing. In fact, when he does come into Jerusalem, uh, it tells us in John that the crowd that saw Lazarus raised from the dead was traveling with him. Okay, so this is not forever, but 
He's managing the hour. They came to take him and make him king by force, but he slipped out of that because, one, they didn't have the right conception of what kind of king he was, and two, it wasn't his moment. See, there's a time in which God works. There's a time in which Christ is doing that. He tells his mother when she asks him to to, to do something about the fact that the wine has run out, um, <laughs> my hour has not yet come. You know, this is not the moment for, for that. And yet, he submits to her authority. I think that's really interesting. So one reason why he was saying that all the way up to that point was that he's managing the hour. There needs, this needs to all come to a head at just the right moment. Are, are you with me? This, God is a God of timeliness. Jesus is the Messiah who understands his timing. There's something about spiritual wisdom that helps us to know timing. That it's, you know, not everything is appropriate at every time. And it's strange to us that we would hear Jesus say, don't tell people about me. But that was for a time. And we need to be people of time. And so we're understanding that, that he's managing the time of the sacrifice. And the second reason why he would say, don't tell anybody about this, is because he's resisting popular misunderstandings about what the Messiah looked like, okay? A lot of people in Jesus' day, and a lot of people in our day, too, have an understanding of what they think Messiah should be. Are, are you with me on that? that? That we think that this is what he's like. And Jesus defies our definitions, and he goes with God's definition. He doesn't fit neatly into what exactly we would want him. Like, a lot of people, when they come to Jesus, they want to have a little Jesus in their pocket, that they can pull out whenever they want to give them the good life, who makes no demands, who doesn't challenge them to live better, who's the get-out-of-hell-free card. It's what they want, but they don't want a Messiah that they have to follow, a Messiah that they have to submit their lives to, a Messiah who will lead and guide them into goodness. They don't want something like that often or will challenge their priorities or tell them that the pursuits of our present day are evil or that our identity is not defined by what we think but by who God says we are. A lot of people don't want that kind of Messiah. So when Jesus says, don't tell people uh, what's happened, I think what he's doing is he's trying to manage uh, the vision of what Messiah is so that it's not misunderstood. See, I think uh, in the popular conception of Messiah in Jesus' day was a military leader who will fight against the Romans and raise an army and win back the throne of David. Okay, And so, as we were talking about earlier, they were looking for what people have looked for ever since. It's part of the reason for communism. It's part of the reason for socialism. It's even a little bit part of the reason for the American dream. It's that people are looking for utopia. We want heaven on earth. And the word that we need to get from Jesus' Messiahship is that heaven won't come on earth until he brings it on earth. Are, are you with me? I hope that's not discouraging to you. Like, we've got to go and burn all of our political cards and we can't be <laughs> good citizens anymore. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we fight for justice. We fight for good. We fight for truth and what's right. But let's understand that it, were, it will never fully come until Jesus returns and, and establishes his kingdom upon earth. And that's promise for us. But often we want to do that, and they wanted to do that in Jesus' day. Let's, let's find a military leader. And so they kept looking for that. And guess what? When you look for something, sometimes you find it even though it's not there. Have you ever been in a dark room and your eyes, maybe you were scared, and your eyes made out things that were not there? Any, I was so scared of the dark when I was a kid. Probably because we always heard about demons when I was in church. <laughs> Lord, help us. <laughs> I can't tell you many times my mom would tell me, Luke, you have Jesus in your heart, and Jesus is more powerful than all those. Just say, the Lord rebuke you and go to sleep. She wanted to get to sleep herself. <laughs> um, but anyway, when you're in a dark room, if you're looking for the figure of a person, you're going to find it somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, there's somebody standing there. Well, it's a, it's a coat that's leaned up against a rocking chair, and it looks like that. But you see, the same kind of principle happens when people were looking for the kind of Messiah that they wanted. And so they got behind all kinds of freedom fighters, 
And a lot of those ended in those freedom fighters and their followers going to crosses. And they died. A lot of them died. Not to rise again, sadly. Are you with me? But Jesus is a leader of a different kind. When Jesus does come to Jerusalem, he's going to do it on his terms, and he's going to reveal what kind of king he is. Everywhere else in the gospel, Jesus traveled on foot. Okay? He, he travels on foot. He walks from Galilee. He walks to Caesarea Philippi. He walks to Jerusalem. He, wherever he goes, he's walking. It's strange that he should say when he gets within three miles of Jerusalem, you know what, I'm tired. Uh, anybody have a donkey? That's not the reason. He's seeking to make some kind of a statement here. Jesus traveled on foot. Here he rides not just on a donkey, but a colt of a donkey. And it seems to me that this would look kind of strange to see a grown man riding the littlest donkey who's never given anybody a ride before. There's some statement that's being made in this. It would have been a strange sight it would have made him noticeable. It would have been a, a symbol that had significance. And it was only about that three-mile journey. He might have walked, but he wanted to make that statement. Some think that uh, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem this last time, this is, this is certainly not the view of the Bible, and it's certainly, I'm hoping, not the view of all of us, but that Jesus fell into a trap, and he wasn't prepared for what was going to happen. Like, he's coming, he's coming into Jerusalem, and then they're going to plot against him, and he's going to get caught up in a trap and be killed when that wasn't his intention. He really intended to do the army thing and liberate Israel from the Romans and all of that. And that the disciples later, in order to deal with what happened, had to conjure up this story. Well, that's not true. Every resource that we have on this tells us that Jesus understood exactly what he was doing. It was a deliberate journey into Jerusalem and the triumphal entry. It was deliberate. And it's deliberate has significance to us. One is that he knew what he was doing to accomplish the will of God. He understood that. Okay. The other thing is, is who do you think he had in mind other than the will of God when he was going down that road? He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' words about his own purpose. He knew what he was about, and he wanted to make a statement. He didn't fall into a trap. He, some had thought that maybe he thought he was safe because of his popularity. He knew how fickle the crowd could be, though I, I think the crowd that welcomes him isn't the same crowd that yelled crucify. I, I used to think that, but... I think that on the day that Jesus was crucified, most of his followers, devout followers, would have been at home preparing the Passover meal. I think it was a gathered crowd that the religious leaders had, maybe them and their families and some other people who were interested in seeing the demise of Jesus. And so when there's a crowd that yells crucify, I don't think it's exactly the same crowd. Uh, and we can, uh, we can discuss that. That's not the biggest issue, but it seems to me that there's a, a contingency of people that have set out to destroy Jesus, and he knew it would happen. In Luke chapter 18, if you'd like to turn over a couple uh, chapters there, Luke 18, 31 through 34, Jesus took the 12 aside. This is before the triumphal entry. The verses we read earlier was him discussing his purpose. It's not yet triumphal entry yet, not until Luke 19. But Luke 18, 31 through 34, Jesus took the 12 aside, his disciples, and said to them, uh, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that was written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Okay, He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and will kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. The disciples didn't understand any of this. Uh, its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know what he was talking about. that interesting? The closest people to Jesus didn't understand what he was talking about, and that tells me something very sad and yet very profound is that Jesus alone carried the burden of what was about to take place. No, no friends to comfort him or even to understand. When he says that they must have, that the Son of Man must come just as the prophets foretold. That was their jumping off point. 
right there, minds already would have gone to a different prophetic symbolism. They would have thought of the coming king or the reigning Messiah, the kind that comes in and is talked about in the Old Testament, a kind that is a victorious warrior. Do you know that Messiah is described as a victorious warrior? Do you know that? But that's not yet. Because the first thing he must do is he must come as a suffering servant. And for some reason, and we do this too, we, we tend to lock, lock on to one or the other of extremes sometimes. Come on, isn't that true? Like we like this one. We don't like that one. We ignore that one and we cling to this one. What does everybody want to do? They want to have Jesus. We, they want to have a Messiah who's going to be victorious. They don't want to have a suffering servant. We've done enough suffering. In fact, they, vi- they envision themselves as the suffering servant. And so when Jesus describes this, he's describing something like Isaiah 52 and 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was on him. By his stripes we're healed. See, he was a man who was afflicted. We, we understand from Isaiah that he was going to be a suffering servant. But that had been blocked out. And so Jesus... Uh, brings that to light and says, this is what I've come for, is to suffer. But it didn't register with his disciples. And the sad statement is they didn't know what he was talking about. So it all comes down to a week, a week of bearing the burden of what he must do without any others who understood. A week of final things in public ministry. He's going to judge the temple. Well, Before that, he's going to judge the fig tree, the fig tree being a symbol of Israel's religion. He's going to judge that. He's going to judge the temple as he goes in and he clears the temple and says, you guys got it all wrong. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. The high priests and the religious leaders, they had their markets in their pockets that were set up in the temple. And it was distracting people from it being the place where they could really meet with God. He needed to cleanse the temple. He was going to celebrate the Passover early with his disciples. You wonder how can Jesus both be in the upper room and celebrate Passover with his disciples and then die on Passover? Well, one explanation is that days in the Jewish calendar start in the evening of the day before, right? But there's a, there's another aspect of that, and that may be that he celebrates early, depending on when you date the upper room. So uh, he would celebrate the Passover early with his disciples, and he would teach and encourage them about what was to come. And he would show us the great demonstration of what it means to be a servant. Son of God did not come just to be served, but to serve. And when everybody else was thinking about their own um, prestige or their own uh, levels or achievements in the kingdom, he, he washed their feet. This is all happening in that last week. You can find the triumphal entry described in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, which we'll look at, and John 12. In Luke 19, verse 37 through 44, just to abbreviate, we're moving now past the uh, time when he, he tells them to go get the, uh, the colt. And if somebody asks you, um, just tell them the master needs it. And so he, we're moving past that, and now he's setting down Uh, the path towards Jerusalem for that final time. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd cried to Jesus or said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And let's pause here. This is in verse 39. And get what they're trying to say is, Jesus, your disciples are making claims equivalent to you being the Messiah. You need to rebuke them. You see what they're doing? They're saying, your disciples have gotten carried away with this messianic fervor, and they're claiming for you something that is not true about you. Jesus says, um, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and he said, if you, if, you, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. 
but now it's hidden from your eyes. And the days will come upon you when your enemies will build embankments against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. We can only speculate because history played out differently. But we wonder what might have happened if all of Israel had turned to Jesus. What might have been avoided? Because, you know, this is probably, I, th- I think, probably A.D. 30. Okay? Jesus was born prior to the year zero. I don't know if you knew that, but that's almost universally accepted. 7 to 4 B.C. A.D. 30, approximately, when this is happening. And 40 years later, the temple, just as Jesus prophesied, will be destroyed. All of Israel's religion will be transformed from a localized thing to something we do within synagogue and within our homes. Everything has changed because somebody rose up and said, we are going to get the Romans out. If that Messiah won't do it, we'll find one who will. And it instigated revolt and it was destroyed by Titus in AD 70. You can read about it in Josephus's the Jewish wars. Tragic. And so Jesus uh, points to this. And, and yet his coming says something different, doesn't it? A clear message to anyone who knew the scriptures. Jesus isn't coming in, writing in a, um, a glamorous and authoritative way. He's coming humbly. And if they'd known their scriptures, they would have remembered David wrote out of Jerusalem when his Son Absalom tried to seize the throne, and he returns on a donkey in peace. Zechariah's message of hope in Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, which is quoted in Matthew and John, talks about the king riding on a donkey, coming in, riding to you, a humble king. He's coming to you. Jesus is a certain kind of leader. I, I want you to know he is fierce. And when he comes back, it's going to be terrifying to those who don't know him. But, but that's after every wooing and every attempt has been frustrated. Because he comes gently first, doesn't he? Listen to his words. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. He's a gentle Messiah. I think I didn't get enough sleep last night. He's gentle, and he invites us to come and to respond to him in that way. Zechariah's message was one of hope that in Zechariah 9, uh, 9 through 10, he talks about the king coming, and all military hardware will be destroyed, and he shall command peace to the nations. To the nations, listen, to the nations. I think the Hebrew word for that probably is goyim. I don't know exactly. I haven't looked it up. But that, that reflects the idea that he's going to extend peace to the Gentiles. Do you understand that that means you and me? We're here today. I don't know how many of you are Jewish in your ancestry. But if you're not, and I think it's probably the majority, that we are a recipient of the peace that Jesus extended to us. That's good news. And we get to know each other, which is like the cherry on top. Right? Maybe you don't think that, but Paul said something like, and if you disagree on this, the Lord will reveal it to you. And I'm going to pass that along. All right. He announced himself as Jerusalem's long-awaited king, a king who is coming in terms of peace. And this message is in stark contrast to what might have been expected. The king who comes on a a war horse, a white horse of some kind to be the head of an army. We find out that happens later at the end of the book, doesn't it? We still anticipate that. The coming of our king on a white horse. But for now, we see him riding in on a donkey. Not expected. But what Jesus has to offer is far better than we ever expect. I hope you know that. Will you hear me? I'm coming to a close, but please hear me on this. What Jesus offers us is far better than what we expect. It's far better than a utopia we could construct. It's far better than all of that. Because if you think about this, 
he's coming in. He's coming down that final stretch before that awful final thing, which must happen. And all that people can think of is the oppressiveness of the nations against God's people. And what Jesus is thinking of here is something different. He sees that there's something more oppressive than the Romans. In fact, it's the spirit which holds people in bondage and compels the Romans to conquest and oppress and to idolatry. And it's the spirit that stands behind all of human rebellion. And we're not, we're not able to just push all of this over on the devil either. Come on, do you know the devil is at work? Everybody say amen. Not that we would want it to be so, but it's true. And do you know that the devil is able to use people easily because they want to go along with him? We want to do. We love evil things apart from Christ. And so it's a, it's a cohort. It's, it's, a, it's an axis of evil that fights against the reign of God. And what Jesus came to do is to put an end, to deal with that system of evil. He came to forgive sin and empower the righteousness that God requires. And he did all of that. And not only that, but he came promising life. Look, if, if he had come and been the leader that they had wanted in that day, they would have experienced that for a lifetime. But what he came to do, we get to experience for eternity. You know, we, talk, we look at the Old Testament, and oftentimes we see in the Old Testament, it's filled with material blessings, right? Okay, And Paul talks about in the New Testament, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The thing about material things is that they rust, and they get stolen, and they decay. Are you with me? Like you had a brand new car one time, but you drove it off the lot. I'm right. Am I, am I not, John? You drive it off the lot. And it's already depreciating. Man, that's so depressing. It's good for business. (laughs) If you need a new car, see John. (laughs) It's good for business. But here's the thing that I'm trying to come to in this, is that this whole world is in decay. Even Paul says the outward man is perishing. But what the inward man is being renewed day by day. And he goes on to say these light momentary troubles are not worth comparing with the glory which will be revealed in us. He's pointing to eternity. And this is what Jesus offers us, that in spite of what is going on in Washington or London or anywhere around the world that you could think of, or Russia or Ukraine, whatever's going on, we know that there's still a kingdom which will emerge, will, that will displace all of those, the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he'll rule forever. He comes humbly. There's going to come a day when he's going to come and every eye will see him and they will tremble. They will turn away. Remember what it says in Revelation that when they see him on that day, they will look upon him whom they pierced and they will mourn as for an only son. This is the Messiah we're looking to. But we live in the tension right now. We live between two worlds. We feel gravity pulling us to this world and saying these are the priorities of life. And that some of those priorities we have to take care of. We have to go to work. We can't just say, well, I'm a Christian now. I don't have to do that anymore. God will provide. Yeah, he'll provide by giving you work. <laughs> right? Um, and we, can't, we have to pay our taxes. We can't use a, some kind of weird thing like, well, God told me that I don't have to pay taxes anymore. Don't do that. Jesus even paid taxes. It's sad, isn't it? Okay, but all of this I'm saying is that we have another kingdom that is emerging, and um, we're looking to, we we have all of that, but we're looking to God. We're looking to him, and we're living in this tension between two worlds, this upward pull of God, this downward gravity of, of living in this world. And as Christians, we have to decide where our priorities are. And so when Jesus comes in, there's a clear division, isn't there? There's a crowd that's around him saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of Hosanna. Save us now. But there's another system at work, isn't there? A system that's seeking to preserve its own thrones. A power system, a power struggle. And let me tell you, they will not win. 
they will not win. Those who oppose him will not win. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. A vain thing. You know what that means? It's empty to try to resist him. In fact, I would suggest to you, if you're running from him and resisting him, lay down your weapons right now. Turn around and surrender because he cannot be beat. If you, if, if God is pursuing you and he wins, he wins, right? And if you fight against him, you'll lose and he'll still win. Why did the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Why did they uh, lift up their voice? Why did they raise their voice against the Lord and his anointed? Let us cast off these shackles. We don't want your rules anymore. We don't want your kingdom anymore. We don't want your rule anymore. And the Lord in heaven, is he, is he frightened by that? What tanks can we bring against our Messiah? Nothing can't be brought against him. The Lord in heaven laughs. He'll rule with a rod of iron, the Bible says. He'll dash them to pieces like pottery. And, and all of this is figurative language, but the, the principle is that Jesus, this humble king, he will win. He will win. And it's triumphal, even though it doesn't look like it. Are, are you with me? Sometimes things are not what they seem. Jesus going to the cross, don't you think the enemy thought this is perfect? Don't you think the religious leaders thought this is perfect? But they didn't understand what was being unleashed. God was doing something in the death of Christ. Where is wisdom? It's often not found. Where is strength? It's often not found where we think it is. The strength of overthrowing the world happened when a man laid down his life. There's power. There's power in that. Jesus wasn't caught off guard by this. As was said, we stand in that place of tension. But Christianity's never been really about the the powerful or the power structures following him. It's always been about individuals choosing to follow him. And so we are standing in tensions, and we can feel it all around us. We feel the world sliding off in a direction that is against God, throwing off all of his prescriptions about what's good for life. And I think we as Christians have to determine who our king is and which direction we'll go. Well, you serve him. He, he knew what he was doing. It was deliberate. He came for you and me. Will you deliberately choose him? He committed himself to you. Will you commit yourself to him? He set the course for peace, righteousness, and joy. Will you choose it by choosing him? Um, Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention today. There's nothing more beautiful than Jesus, a humble king who will serve. Nobody's descended lower as Paul describes it, though equal with God, he descended and he came down into our situation as a, a human and he lived in our world. He lived in our skin, so to speak. And he descended even lower to the place of a slave. And even lower still, when the Bible says he died a slave's death, the death of the cross. And God exalted him and put his name above every name. But the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess. And I think that's going to happen for every person. I think it's a matter of when. For some, it'll be that humble recognition that I must say this, but it's too late, that he is king. For others, and I hope that's all of us, that we're going to say it now, even though we're living in tension with this world, even though it's not always convenient to follow Jesus. We're going to say it in faith. I'm following him, even though the world doesn't understand him. I'm following him. Even though he's not the kind of leader this world is looking for, I'm following him. Okay? And I'm going to ask you today, who's your king? Who's your king? Let's bow our heads. Let's take a moment to respond to the Lord. I think he, he wants to speak to us. I think probably in some of our minds where we want to be Christian, but we still want utopia here. 
Like we don't want we don't want Jesus to come back too soon, not till we've established our personal utopia. And I wonder today if that might be a little bit of unbelief. We've not said, Lord, you will. You take it all. You have it all. I serve you as king. You're the only one who can bring true righteousness, joy, and peace. I would ask you today, if you've been looking for that, if we've been divided, if you've been stretching out into two worlds and trying to cling to both, maybe you would let go of this world in a sense. I don't mean you've got to go walk away from your responsibilities. I mean that our heart isn't divided anymore, that it's fully for God. It's fully trusting in Christ. Would you trust in him today? Maybe there's somebody here you've never said to the Lord Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. Would you do that today? Would you say to him, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm looking to you with the rest of my life. Take it and use it how you will. I'm trusting in your death that it covers my sins. I'm trusting in your resurrection that you are Lord of life and that you have something good prepared for all who trust you. Simple prayer like that. Meant from the heart could change everything. It's that short walk. It's the sawdust trail. It's looking to him. Maybe others we need to be reunited with the Messiah that we've claimed to serve. We've been off wandering. We've been the sheep that's gotten out of the pen. We've been walking in a way that's estranged from him. Would you return to your Messiah? Would you walk with your Christ and Lord again? Would you say to him, here's my soul once again. I've given to you before, but Lord, I'm coming back and I'm doubling down upon that and saying all of this is yours. And I think a third category would be, Lord, help us to know you more. We often begin in the spirit and we we finish with the flesh. We want to do things the world's way even though we know you never did things the world's way. Help us, Lord, to walk with you as Messiah in the day-to-day living. I think a lot of people across this room, maybe that's where our battle is. We're committed to the Lord, but playing that out, living that out, that's the struggle. Amen. If, if God's speaking to you, maybe in any of these three areas or something else, these steps are our altar. Would you come and spend a few moments with Jesus today before we go? Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.